It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It is, as always, a great pleasure to be with you. And lots to talk about, as always. Uh, my lead story today is a one-hour interview that I had with former President Donald Trump. We taped it uh, Wednesday out at his uh, residence and golf club, Bedminster, New Jersey. It was a wonderful experience, wonderful experience. And the thrust of the interview was about the economy. We did not talk politics. We did not talk horse race. We did not talk about the Biden scandals. And we did not talk about the crazy indictments, the double standard, politicized, weaponized indictments against the former president. We didn't talk about that. We talked about the economy and related matters. Um, Why? Well, because nobody else does. (laughs) That's why nobody else talks substance, issues, things that matter daily to Americans. And uh, it was a proposal I made. Actually, it was his comms director suggested it a month or two ago, and I filled in some of the blanks, and it was a great success, and he was very good. I mean, I'll tell you just a couple things. We sat directly across from each other, okay, right across from each other, face-to-face. We talked policies and issues and content and substance. And I will just tell you right off the top, my gut reaction is that this is a great American leader a great American leader. I was sitting across from a president, admittedly a former president, quite possibly a future president, surely a great American leader. And he walked through this. He was at the top of his game. You know, the Georgia indictment, which is um, among the silliest of the silly, the Georgia indictment was two days earlier. You wouldn't know him. He was calm. He was temperamentally moderate. He was focused on talking about essentially how to make America's economy great again and how to make our standing in the world great again. He had tremendous command of the facts, the figures, the problems, and he had any number of important solutions. So I want to emphasize that. It was an extremely constructive conversation. Now, this, of course, played Thursday, last Thursday, on my show on Fox Business, which is called Cudlow. And um, I'll give you a temporary quick ad. You can get us 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday, Fox Business. And it's still up on the website, you you can get it. It's all over YouTube. And basically, I mean, really at the bottom of the bottom line, Mr. Trump provided a positive vision, 
a positive vision to end the country's current decline, rejuvenate America's prosperity and confidence at home, restore its standing around the world. Talked about common sense solutions. Common sense solutions for ordinary working folks, middle class folks. I love that. He mentioned the word common sense several times. And we talked about a bunch of numbers. You know, Joe Biden is out there, as I've said many times, Biden is incapable of telling the truth about the economy. You know, but the Biden story or the Bidenomics story, which he's trying to sell in recent weeks, utterly failed, I might add. His economic approvals are on, uh, depending on the polls, somewhere between 28 and 34 percent. But I mean, I'll, I'll just show you some of the stats. We, we used, by the way, I don't think this has ever been done with a president. <laughs> we used facts. We, we put charts on the full screen. We put charts on the full screen. And we also used a number of sound bites from Biden attacking Trump. But you know, Biden always says he inherited an economy that was, quote, reeling. And then he inherited high inflation. This is the outright lie. The economy was growing at 6.5% when Mr. Trump left office, and the inflation rate was 1.4% when Mr. Trump left office. Now, for the first 30 months, the first 30 months of the two administrations, the CPI under Biden has gone up by 17%. Under Trump, his first 30 months, it went up only 6%. If you annualize that, the CPI under Biden was 7.4% annual rate. Under Trump, 1.9%. Remarkable. Grocery prices under Mr. Biden have gone up 20%. Under Mr. Trump, they went up 2%. And the price of gasoline today, as it was on Wednesday, Thursday, $3.87. When Mr. Trump left office, it was barely above $2. And then, of course, Biden tries to take credit for all the returning, recovering COVID jobs. But when you go back and compare them to the pre-pandemic baseline, you get a completely different picture after 30 months. Trump created 4.9 million jobs. Biden, 2.1 million. Trump created 454,000 jobs. Biden, 204,000. In other words, Trump's job total more than doubled Biden's. And of course, interest rates have soared under Biden. And one representative interest rate is the 30-year mortgage rate. Under Mr. Trump, 2.65%. Under Mr. Biden today, it's over 7.5%. The housing market is getting killed because the mortgage rates are going up. In fact, as you know, interest rates have gone up across the board, 500-some-odd basis points. And the bond market right now, is in the throes of the bear market, the 10-year treasury, all the way up to four and a quarter percent. Stock market is now swooning again. We're seeing an August swoon. On the regulatory front, Mr. Biden has increased regulations per household, 
per household by over $5,000. Mr. Trump's has fallen, but went down by $2,500. Stock markets have way outperformed. In fact, I'll read you this thing. Where's my stock market chart? I don't know. It's here someplace. Uh, the S&P 500, the index, up 31% under Trump, 17 under Biden. The NASDAQ uh, high-tech, 56%, 16% for Biden. And as far as middle-class incomes are concerned, after the Trump tax cuts, after the Trump tax cuts, real family incomes, that's the average income, $6,400 plus $6,400. Mr. Biden, minus $4,000. Minus. You lost 4000 bucks under Biden so far from a lousy economy and high inflation. And to Mr. Trump, he gained 6400 bucks. That was in 2018 and 2019, following the Trump tax cuts. So the differences couldn't be greater. Essentially, you've had a Trump boom, and you've had a Biden bust. And those are facts. Those are factoids. Now, I've said this before. You've heard me say these numbers before in different forms. But I repeat them, and um, President Trump and I went through them during this interview. We're going to have my great dear friend, my brother Steve Moore, is going to come on at the half hour. We're going to talk about some. I've got a bunch of clips, sound clips from the interview, and we'll walk through them. But basically, basically, on the economy, Trump wants to reopen the fossil fuel spigots, cut taxes, cut regulations, and protect the value of the dollar. And he wants to get tough on trade and tear into the Washington, D.C. deep state. It's a badly needed growth and prosperity agenda. It's a growth and prosperity agenda. Trump is the only candidate in either party that has a true, serious growth and prosperity agenda. And he has the experience. He did it once, actually he did it twice, both before and after the pandemic, and he wants to do it again. He wants to protect the value of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. He believes the dollar, strong dollar worldwide is consistent with American greatness. And Trump is a superb negotiator, a superb negotiator on trade and tariffs and foreign policy, with Russia and China and in the Middle East. And I believe he'll live and die to protect American interests. That's kind of a quick summary of what I heard, what we went over in our interview. We're just sitting right across from each other. I want to tell you something. It was a great pleasure. You know I'm biased to Trump, but he's delivering the goods. He's running his best campaign, his best issues campaign, much better than 2020 and much like 2016, but better than 2016 because of his experience 
and he's got a base platform now. Nobody else can match him. Nobody else has done this. That's why he's leading in the polls. America's not interested in these phony indictments. That's my view. America wants to know how we will get this country moving again, how we will restore growth and prosperity, how we will defend our borders, how we will defend our kids, how we will project strength overseas. Trump has a lot of answers, and he'll go the distance to achieve them. That's what I took away from this interview. It was a great pleasure. It was a great honor. Terrific stuff. Top of his game. Go on Fox uh, Business. Go find the interview. You'll enjoy it, folks. I'm going to take a quick break here. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, you can live stream us over the Internet uh, for the full uh, three hours of the show. Live stream us over the Internet. It is LarryKudlow.com. No, it's LarryKudlowShow.com. I think that's right. Kevin, is that right? It's Larry Kudlow Show. LarryKudlowShow.com. You can live stream us. You can get us everywhere. I mean, we've got about 150-some-odd affiliates, but if you want to do it over the net, go all around the country, all around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. And as I said during the week, Fox Business, name of the show is Cudlow. It plays 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And if you can't get there at 4, you can DVR the show. Just uh, text your favorite nine-year-old, and she'll show you how to DVR the show. Or there's a rerun of the show at 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., so you've got a lot of options. And uh, you'll never miss a single pseudonym. Well, did I say pseudonym? Just another little story that popped up this week. Uh, I was on vacation Monday and Tuesday, I guess this story, and I came back from Mr. Trump, but... Uh, Robin Ware or Robert L. Peters or J.R.B. Ware. Those are three aliases that President Biden, then Vice President Biden, used as email addresses uh, for communications with his son Hunter. What? Pseudonyms. Aliases. I've never heard of such a thing. I didn't really focus on it. Then I started reading it. And um, what did I do? I think I saw something in the New York Post today, a good story about it in the New York Post. Why is he doing what? (laughs) Aliases? Robin? So it's not President Biden. It's President Ware. Or President Peters. Or President J.R. Beware. Beware. Ha, ha, ha. Why'd he do it? Well, we'll talk about it later in the show, but we got uh, famed, famed law professor Alan Dershowitz coming on at the top of the next hour. Among other things, we'll talk about this. He did it to hide the emails. Because they were talking about meetings, meetings with 
various crooked oligarchs in Ukraine and China and Kazakhstan and Romania. Not, yeah, Romania. Crazy stuff. Russia. Talked about emails, about meetings, dinners. Oh my God. And he did, he did it to hide it from the National Archives and the Official Records Act. Feared nobody would ever find it. But they did. James Comer found it. Jamie Comer, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee. Apparently, I've never heard of such a thing. Emails, aliases, pseudonyms. Almost, you have to look pseudonym, pseudonym up in the dictionary. I mean, this is more lies. A cover-up. Trying to hide his pay-for-play, influence peddling, and bribery. And money. And taking money. It's President Robin Ware. We confer to him as President Ware. Or maybe President J.R.B. Ware, or maybe President Robert L. Peters. Wow, it's a new low in American presidential politics. This is going to be the worst scandal in political history. I'm Kudlow. we got Steve Moore on the other side talk about what Mr. Trump had to say in our interview. Please stick around. Lots more to do. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we are here with my very dear friend and brother, Steve Moore, from Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline. And the WABC radio show, More Money, which follows this show on many of these very same stations. Steve, thank you. Double duty today, beginning and the end. But you're the best guy, I think, to talk about some of this Trump interview stuff. You were out at Bedminster. We all had supper together with the former president. Afterwards, you've seen the interview. You did a great job on the show last night, by the way. Great job. Can't thank Thank you you enough. Um, let me run, I want to, well, let me just say overview. He, he spelled out an economic growth and prosperity agenda. That's the overview of the overview. And um, he emphasized op- reopening the spigots for fossil fuels, tax cuts, deregulation. He also spent a, some a good time, it's very interesting to me, on preserving the, um, the, uh, Reserve status, the world reserve status of the U.S. dollar. In fact, um, 
if producer Kevin can play the King Dollar uh, line we have, I'm going to let you react to it, Steve. Let's start with the King Dollar, if we can get uh, Mr. Drosh to put it up. Our country's going to hell, and we're not going to be the big bar. We have power, but it's waning. In fact, it's waning in terms of our currency. And I'm not just talking about the value of our currency. I'm talking about our currency being used throughout the world. You want it to remain. You want the dollar to remain the world's reserve currency. Well, I think it's bigger than losing any war. Mm-hmm. I think if it doesn't, uh, look, we are already reverting to third world status in many ways. You look at our airports, you look at our terminals, you look at our filthy roads and broken roads and everything else. We're like a third world country. We have something that's very powerful, and that's our dollar all Mm. over. Mm. But you take a look at what's happening to it now with other countries not using it. And you know China wants to replace it with Mm -hmm. the yuan. Mm -hmm. And it was unthinkable with us. Unthinkable. Would never have happened. Now people are thinking about it. That could happen. And if that happens, that would be one of the worst things to happen to this country in 200 years. Mm. Steve, I'm... I have spoken to him about this down through the years, King Dollar, but I was quite surprised. You know, he was very emphatic, and it's clearly on his mind. Um, People have accused him of being a cheap money guy. I don't think so. I mean, he equates the dollar with America greatness. What do you think about that? I think you've had a big impact on his thinking, because when – I first met him, I don't know, eight years ago or something like that. That's, you know, he was kind of in favor of that. He said, I want low interest rates and lots of money in the economy. But I think he realizes now that, you know, the whole idea of King Dollar, which I think is, but you coined that frame, I believe, Larry. I think that's um, embedded in his thinking now. And the, the, it's a more general theme that he was talking about in that um, whole interview and especially that um, little passage that you just played, which is, America's on a bad course right now. <laughs> you know, we're, yeah. we're headed in the wrong direction <laughs> with respect to the border, with respect to energy policy. Which he's exactly right uh, that the uh, number, the uh, percentage of um, world transactions that are dollarized today is falling. Now, we still have a commanding height, but the direction is bad. Uh, you know, with respect to our fiscal policy, it's in the wrong direction. And I think that's what this – I think that Donald Trump will be the nominee, Larry. And I think that if the election is about Trump, I think he's going to lose. But if it's about his policies and his mm-hmm. ideas and what he did for the country, I think he will win. I think he's doing a pretty good job of making it about issues and policies. Exactly. You know, much better than he has in the past, right? Right. I mean, I think that's... No, that's right. You know, I, I, you know, when I, I mean, emailed you after that interview and I said what I really loved about that interview was that he was optimistic. He right. has a really, I mean, his demeanor, and we have dinner with him, he's just, I don't know how he does it, Larry, frankly. I mean, mm. you're, he's got, what, facing 500 years in prison or something like that? <laughs> yes, you know, right, you're going right. to get indicted for walking across the street next week. I mean, the the trash that they're throwing at him, and he has this, you know, very upbeat, demeanor he's relaxed i love this new trump and i think if he can keep that up i think he's going to be the next president yes absolutely he's got a great shot at it i want to play some more get you to react on it um uh, producer drosh how about the energy inflation tape do you have that inflation was caused in my opinion by energy 
because it, it's so big. Energy is so big. It's like all encompassing everything. You make donuts and the mm-hmm. ovens and the trucks that deliver them. And no matter what you do, it's so much about energy. And when they stopped drilling, when they, you know, we had it going like nobody, you were a big part of it. You really had a big thing going for selling all this to Europe yeah. and all yeah, these other countries, yes, right? And we would have made a fortune. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was so sad to see what they did. They cut it off. And again, we, we were drilling much more. We were a bigger force than Russia and Saudi Arabia individually. In a year and a half, we would have been a bigger force than them combined. And we right. would have made so much money. We would have been paying off debt. We would have been doing things that nobody's ever seen this country do. You know, Steve, one of the key points here, um, he mentioned, he said energy is all-encompassing. You know, it affects like a couple of hundred items in the CPI, among other things. And then, of course, uh, as you point out, we're short a couple of million barrels a day where we day, should yeah. be because yeah. of the anti-drilling policies and the uh, anti-fossil policies. But he has a great understanding of the relationship, energy, inflation, and, you know, world politics. Yep, he does. And it isn't really that complicated. I, mm. I don't understand how the Democrats don't get this. That You know, uh, if you think over the, the geopolitics over the last 50 or 60 years, it really has been driven by energy policy, right? The Middle East had uh, OPEC, and they were able to control the world economy and thrust the U.S. economy into recession back in the 70s. And, uh, you know, we didn't even talk about OPEC when Trump was president. <laughs> if you Google OPEC... Nobody ever talked about it because Trump crushed OPEC Mm. because he opened up the spigots. And and he is exactly right. We went from being third in the world to first in the world uh, in energy production. We are two million barrels uh, less than we would be if we uh, per day. And that's 170 million a day that the United States is losing. How Mm. is that? I mean, Mm. I wish we had Biden on. I'd like to ask him, how is that in America's interest? We also have an abundance. Our friend Harold Hamm. Talked about our abundance of natural gas. Natural gas is the greatest fuel ever. It, it reduces greenhouse gas emissions, yes. and the left is against that too. So they're against anything that works, and we are for whatever works. I mean, this is a monumentally important story: the war against fossil fuels from Biden. A monumentally important story, and uh, of course, Trump will hammer away at that, and sure. he would take right. I mean. Um, Trump, Trump said yes to the XL pipeline. He said yes to Anwar. He said yes to drilling. These are huge things, and America needs this stuff, it seems to me. And he's, and the other thing is, you know, the other candidates, I'm sure they agree with Trump, but they don't hardly ever talk about it. And the thing I love about him is he gets it right out there, right out there. Yeah, he leads with it. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Um, uh, well, by the way, Harold, I want to mention Harold Hamm because you did that interview with him hmm. on your show a couple of weeks ago. One of the things that he said, because, you know, the, how for the last six years, the left and the environmentalists, oh, we're running out of oil and gas. And there was a story in the in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago. Oh, maybe the you know, they've, they've reached peak, you know, production and with shale. And you asked Harold about that. He said, hell no. <laughs> he hmm. said, we're just beginning. This evolution is just beginning. Uh, yeah. And so we, we have a super abundance. And of oil, gas, and don't forget about coal, Larry. Mm-hmm. Coal, we have 600 years worth of coal. Coal is still a major form of energy all around the world. 
and um, it is cleaner in the United States than anywhere in the world. So why are we shutting down our coal plants? And they could export big time. Exactly. Yeah, yep. that's a really important point. Um, Trump, on the other hand, is not very keen on our current Federal Reserve Chairman, Jay Powell. We've got a clip of him. I asked him if he would reappoint Jay Powell. And uh, if uh, producer Drosch can put it up, here's what he said. Now, Powell's been reappointed, as you well know. He's going to be there till 2026. So a, a second Trump uh, administration, you have to put up with Jay Powell. What would you do about that? And would you think about reappointing him or speaking with him? Or how would you handle that? Because interest rates can be important tools to stop inflation, but they can also destroy growth. Yeah, uh, I would not reappoint him. Uh, I thought he was always late, mm. whether it was good or bad, but he was always late. Uh, I was surprised he was reappointed. Probably he got reappointed because they knew I didn't like him much. Uh, I felt that he was uh, not good. In fact, I was very tough on him. Mm. And if I wasn't, I think we would have had much higher interest rates for much longer. And we had a boom, and it was primarily, in fact, one time, it looked like I was going to come down on a very hard, and he actually dropped them so much that it was like it was. He dropped them so much at one time. Remember, and people said, "Wow, what's wrong with the economy?" He, he gave him most improved player. Yeah, yeah, he did. He gave most improved player when he <laughs> how finally cut rates during COVID. Um, yeah. You know, we can do. We can get a better Fed chairman, Steve. A better Fed chairman. You know, people forget, by the way, that I I think it was 2000, was it 2018 at the end of 2018, he choked off the economy and he almost thrust the economy into recession. And Trump, quite correctly, was was just hounding him on this and and saying, come on. And as soon as he finally admitted, remember, it was right about Christmas, I think, of 2018, the 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 stock market was tanking, the economy was starting to head south. And Trump was exactly right about this. And as soon as he started cutting those rates, oh, my God, the economy just took off like a rocket ship. So Trump has a kind of uh, street smarts when it comes to this stuff. Right. And I don't think Jay Powell does. You know, uh, on the numbers for that, after the tax cuts passed in late 2017, by the middle of 2018, Steve, I looked this, uh, looked through this. Uh-huh. The four-quarter change in GDP had reached 3.3%, which was the wow. highest in many wow. years. Wow. And then, it, as you said, and as Trump said, Powell starts raising rates uh, in the autumn of 2018, and the economy starts to head south again. But we had done what, remember, we wanted a 3%-plus growth rate, and uh, we, we got it. We actually got it, and then Powell started choking it off. You know why, Larry? Because they believe that the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell and his, what, a 400 Ph.D. economists over there, they believe that growth causes inflation. And our buddy Art Laffer has proven that to be untrue a hundred times. Growth means more supply, more products, lower prices, and more growth. Those things are compatible. And Trump, again, Trump just, he's not an economist, right? Mm. But he just gets this stuff because he's a businessman. And he understands the way the world works, which is such a contrast with Joe Biden, who has no concept at all about the way the world works. All right. Uh, We're talking to the great Steve Moore from uh, FreedomWorks and Heritage Foundation and his daily Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, which is a must-read. 
And Steve is the host of the WABC radio show, More Money, which uh, plays right after this show. Steve, hang with me. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back in just a few moments. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with the great Steve Moore from uh, Freedom Works and Heritage Foundation and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline. By the way, folks, that Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline is a daily show called More Money. We're talking about uh, my interview with uh, former President Donald Trump this past week, which played on Fox Business uh, Thursday and Friday. Steve was on the show Friday, and Steve was with us out there in Bedminster. We had supper with the former president. It was a great supper. You're right. He was, you know, that supper, he was relaxed. Right. He was talking about issues. He was, you know, making some jokes about this and the other thing. And he had been indicted two days before. I mean, it really was something. That's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> no, All right. I mean, I don't think there's anyone. I mean, is he like superhuman or something? He's got some kind of uh, <laughs> right. shield or something that, yeah. you know, protects him. Because, it, look, I mean, how do you do that? You, most Americans, most people would just be. A, a wreck uh, facing what he's faced. And mm. oh, look, whether you like Donald Trump or not, you've got to admit that the way he's been treated by the Democrats and the media has been the shabbiest treatment of any president in history by a mm. mile. Mm. And yet he's still he's still just soldiers forward. A lesser man would just say to hell with this. <laughs> he He was so focused. During the interview, Steve, he just was focused on the substance. You know, I mean, I wanted an economic interview, and that's what we did. <laughs> I mean, it really was quite remarkable. All right. One of the more interesting parts of this thing, uh, his views on trade and tariffs, and he's talking about a very aggressive trade policy, and I want to play the tape on this and uh, get your comment. I know you know some of this. But uh, if producer Kevin runs that uh, tariff uh, uh, tape, you uh, let everybody uh, hear it, then we'll talk about it. I think we should have a ring around the collar, as mm-hmm. they say. Mm-hmm. I think when companies come in and they dump their products in the United States, they should pay automatically, let's say, a 10 percent tax. Mm-hmm. That money would be used to pay off debt. It's a massive amount of money, mm-hmm. even a 10 percent. It's not going to stop business because it's not that much, but it's enough that would really make a lot of money. The other thing I want to have is a matching tax where if India charges us, India is very big with uh, tariffs. Oh, yeah, very protective. Okay. I mean, I saw it with Harley Davidson. I was saying, how do you do in a place like India? Oh, no good, sir. Why? They have 100% and 150% and 200% tariffs. 
So I said, so they can sell their Indian motorbike. They actually make a bike, Indian motorbike. They can sell that into our country with no tax, no tariff. But when you make a Harley, when you send it over there, because they were doing no business. I said, how come you don't do business with India? The tariff is so high that nobody wants it. But what they want us to do is they want us to go over and build a plant. Mm. And then you have no tariff. Mm. I said, well, that's not good. That's not our deal, okay? That's not our deal. And I came down very hard on them. Uh, but India is very big. Brazil is very big on tariffs. I mean, very, very big. And uh, we had a couple of people, like the senator from a place called Pennsylvania that I love. Uh, but this guy was just horrendous. I said, let me ask you a question. Uh, if India is charging us 200% and we're charging them nothing for products... Can we charge him 100%? No, sir, that's not free trade. Mm. Can we charge him 50%? No, sir, 25, 10, anything, no. I said, what the hell is wrong? This, there's something wrong. You know who I'm talking about. I do. Every single thing we tried to get through, he would try and block. So if India's charging us too, so what I want to have is a called retribution, you could call it whatever you want. If they charge us, we charge Reciprocity. them. Reciprocity. You could call it anything. There's many names. You call it equalization. Mm-hmm. If they ch- All right. Reciprocity. And then uh, a 10% ring around the collar. Uh, but I, I don't, I think that he wants to merge the two. Uh, you and I were talking to him about this at dinner. First of all, you go ahead, Steve. What's your reaction to all this? Because this is very controversial. Well, look, I believe in free trade. You believe in free trade. Mm-hmm. Lapper believes in free trade. But, you know, if the goal is free trade, how do we get other countries to reduce their tariffs, right. uh, which is in the interest of us and their own citizens? And Trump has, I think, very effectively used the sword of tariffs to, with the objective of having these other countries reduce their tariffs. And in many instances, Larry, I mean, you were there, but it worked, right? He was able to force some of these countries I mean, he told the story about the, you know, he's gonna. He said he was gonna oppose a big tariff on French wine. He said mm-hmm. that got, <laughs> that mm-hmm. got the uh, French government's attention, and they started, you know, they started playing fairly. And so, if that's the objective of of uh, you know creating more free trade and not putting America at a disadvantage, then I'm all for it. I think it is. I mean, my experience with him, with. Um U.S., Mexico, Canada, USMCA, also Japan, also South Korea, and, of course, the biggest one was the China trade deal. He uses tariffs as a negotiating tool. Right. The art of the deal. I mean, he would punish, but then he'd bring them to the table. And I think that's what he wants, to equalize, um, you know, tariffs and ultimately to bring them down. Now, it will be controversial and it will be misrepresented, but I think that's what he wants. Steve, we're out of time now. You and I and Liz Peek are going to talk much later in the show. (laughs) Thank you, buddy. You're terrific stuff. Folks, we're going to take... Congratulations, by the way, on the amazing interview. They did got picked up everywhere. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Folks, we will break. And on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about the indictments of Mr. Trump. We have Harvard Law Professor Emeritus Alan Dershowitz, the most brilliant guy, and he's going to give us his views. You may be very surprised at how hostile he is to some of these indictments. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back. 
It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Uh, we are very honored to have uh, Harvard Law Professor Emeritus Alan Dershowitz come on the show and talk a little bit about some of these uh, Trump indictments, particularly the one in Georgia. Um, Mr. Dershowitz is the author of Get Trump, the threat to civil liberties, due process, and our constitutional rule of law. He is perhaps the most famous attorney and law professor in the United States and among maybe the most respected. Uh, Alan, if I may personally thank you for helping us on a Saturday morning. We're very grateful to you for hey, doing I'm this. A, I'm a big fan of yours, so anytime you ask, I'm always going to say yes. Uh, you're great. You've been great on the show. And... Um, I know you're not voting for Trump. I get that. But your legal arguments, let me start um, this. Let me see. The the DailyMail.com, I'll just read the header. Alan Dershowitz, colon. Al Gore, his legal team, and I tried to find uncounted presidential votes, lobbied officials, and fought in the courts in 2000. The only difference now, the candidate's name is Donald Trump. That's why this prosecution is an outrage. I remember the 2000 thing all too well. Uh, I was on the side of George W. Bush, but I thought the whole thing was an incredible story. So why are the Trump, why is Trump and his people being prosecuted now when you all weren't back then? We were praised. I mean, I wrote a bestseller book about it called (laughs) Supreme Injustice, which got great reviews from the New York Times and everybody else. Um, The difference is a change in time and a change in person. You know, today's portion of the Bible that's read, it's my 80, it's my 72nd anniversary of my bar mitzvah today. Oh, wonderful. The portion of the week week gives an instruction to prosecutors and judges, and it says, do not recognize faces. That's the ultimate instruction to a judge and a prosecutor. Justice Mm. shouldn't depend on who the person is. Wear a blindfold. The statue of justice with a blindfold comes from this biblical command. Do mm. not recognize faces. And that's what no. our system has turned into. It's all no. about who you are, what party you're from, what views you represent, you know, what, what color you are, what gender you are. It's all about faces today. And that's that you can't have justice mm. when it depends on who the person is. Now, look, what Al Gore did was much more, much, much better from a moral point of view than what Donald Trump did. He conceded victory, even though it was a five to four decision and uh, it was very close. And I think the Supreme Court was wrong. You might think it was right, but he did the right thing. He said, look, I lost. I'm going to go to the inauguration. I'm going to recognize the next president. Donald Trump didn't do that. He Mm -hmm. made that speech on on January 6th, which I thought was terrible. So, what he did was wrong, but was it criminal? And the answer is no, it wasn't. You don't make criminal out of matters of degree. Mm. And the difference between what we did on behalf of Gore and what the people who have been indicted in Georgia did on behalf of Donald Trump is a matter of degree. And the best way to test that, assume for a moment <clears throat> that Trump was right. Assume for a moment that the election actually went the wrong way in Georgia, that he had enough votes to win. If he had been right, he'd be praised for what he did. Everything in the indictment 
today would be something he'd be honored for. Oh, my God. He discovered a flawed election. He got it turned around. Everybody should be happy with that. I don't think he was right, but he thinks he was right. And a crime like RICO and conspiracy is in the mind of the defendant. So if he wouldn't have been prosecuted had he been right, he should not be prosecuted if he was wrong, but he honestly believed he was right. And that, to me, is the basic flaw of the Georgia prosecution. And then this prosecutor, this lying, lying prosecutor, looks at the American public and says, I want to bring this case to trial in six months. It's not going to happen. You know Mm. it's not going to happen. Mm. And a bunch of amicus curiae Republicans, good people, wrote a brief in the Washington, D.C. case saying they want the trial to start on January 2nd, 2014. That's four months and three weeks after the indictment. Never in the history of the country has anybody ever been brought to trial on a RICO charge or charges complicated like this in four months, five months, six months, eight months, ten months. It's usually over a year. Um, Professor, is this so it's politicized. Is that fair? Absolutely. Of course, it never would happen if the shoe were on the other foot. Right. By the way, you know, going back to the year 2000 and all that, I remember the final concession speech that Al Gore made, which <laughs> Alan was a hell of a speech. Uh, one of the, maybe the best speech he'd ever given. You know, it's I, funny. I, 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 I know Al Gore. I mean, I've talked to him in years. Um, I uh, there was a time in the eighties and early nineties when I agreed with a lot of what Al Gore said. I, I'm, yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not a fan of all of his climate stuff, but some of his other stuff was quite good. Chickley Farm Policy. Uh, so basically, the point is, you're saying you, you all lobbied officials, you fought in the courts, you were looking for additional votes. It's very similar to what Trump has done here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wasn't on any such phone calls, but I can easily imagine a phone call where mm. Larry Tribe or David Boys, the main lawyers for, for Al Gore, were saying, we've got to find 600 votes. I'm sure they're there. Mm. Just have recount after recount. Pick your counties carefully. Remember what we did in the in the in the Gore case. We didn't seek a recount in the entire state because we thought we'd lose that. We sought a recount only in selected counties. And that was a little bit of you know of, of partisan politics. But you play partisan politics when you're representing a partisan. But you could criticize us for that. It's not a crime. And you know. I think, again, the best test of whether there's a crime charge in Georgia is would that same crime have been charged if he turned out to be right? Mm. You know, when Jamie Raskin, my former student, who I gave a good grade in criminal law, <laughs> I would take it back now if I could. He gave the analogy, the stupidest analogy. He would have gotten an F if he had given this analogy. He said, well, you can't go and rob a bank if you think they shortchanged you. <laughs> no, of course not. But you can't rob a bank even if they actually shortchanged you. Uh, even if they, if you have proof, 100% proof that they stole the money from you, you can't go back and do it. Best proof of that is, remember O.J. Simpson? He went and tried to retrieve his trophies and stuff mm. that he knew and correctly mm. knew had mm. been stolen from him. And he spent, what, six years in jail for that? Yes. So, you know, of course the analogy is not at all there. You can't rob a bank no matter what. But you can challenge an election. 
And if you're right, you get praised for it. Um, Professor Dershowitz, you have another piece out. Uh, the Hunter Biden special counsel appointment is blatantly right. illegal. Could you just talk a bit about that, please? Yeah, there's a regulation that says you have to pick the special counsel from outside the government. And last night I proposed something which was painful for me to, to propose because, you know, I know I know uh, President Biden. I've known him since 1980. I like him. I hope to be able to vote for him. Mm. But I think the time has come to have a special counsel from outside appointed to investigate the allegations against him as well. In fact, if I were Joe Biden, I would be calling for a special counsel. He'd be better off having some very distinguished former dean, president of a university, you know, somebody beyond reproach. Looking at these facts, instead of having congressional committees, dueling committees in the Senate, you know, Democrats in the House, Republicans, looking at this with a partisan eye, I think he'd be better off, particularly if he's innocent. You know, I was accused of sexual misconduct about eight years ago, uh, falsely. But the first thing I did when I was accused is I demanded an FBI investigation. I called for it. I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal. First time ever anybody's ever done that. I said, I will give all of my documents, will not invoke any privileges. I want to be investigated honestly and fairly. Of course, they didn't do it. And then, then the woman admitted that she, had, she may have confused me with somebody else. So... Mm. If you're innocent, the best defense is to have an independent investigation. And that's why if I were Al Gore, if I were the lawyer for uh, President Biden, if I was convinced he was innocent, I would be the one calling for a special uh, special counsel from outside the government. I never understood, uh, reading all the reports and so forth, um, with respect to this blanket immunity, which popped up uh, at the court hearing in uh, Wilmington, Delaware, with yeah. uh, Judge Naika, uh, Noriega. I, I never understood that. It was on, it was off, it was on, it was off. And then they said, well, no, it's really not on. And then I believe the judge says, "What? asked for constitutional uh, reasons for it, and they couldn't right. find it. I mean, the whole thing right. is a big muddle. How do you see that? Well, remember, I was the only one who predicted uh, over and over again that uh, the judge would not accept the plea bargain. CNN mocked me. Some of my colleagues mocked me. They all said, oh, judges always accept this. It's routine. I said, not in this case. She's not going to accept it because we don't know what the deal is. We're not sure what it covers. Does it cover, you know, what happened allegedly in Ukraine and China? Does it only cover what happened in Delaware? Mm. How can you accept the plea bargain if you don't know what its terms are? And she was right, mm. uh, and she refused to accept it. Now, you know, there'll be another plea bargain, I predict. Uh, I don't think either side wants to bring this case to trial. The problem is the American public is not going to be confident that the man who makes the plea bargain for the government isn't covering his own rear end. Remember, mm -hmm. he made a sweetheart plea bargain, according to a lot of people. He's going to want to justify that. And I think if he now comes up with an indictment that's going to carry a five-year prison term, people are going to say, well, what happened? Why did you agree to a plea bargain when this information was out there? So he's going to be either consciously or unconsciously inclined to try to justify what he did in the past. That's why he's precisely the wrong person to do this investigation. Do you think at any point in that process that um, Hunter Biden's foreign financial entanglements will be explored? I sure hope so. They should be. Mm. And I think that if there's any possibility that his father was involved, they should be explored too. Mm. The American public has the right to an objective, neutral, nonpartisan determination of that. 
so far, neutral and nonpartisan has been read out of our justice system. Hmm. The justice system today has become so partisan, so dependent on whose party it is, who the person is, race, gender, all of that. Hmm. It's, it's, it's a terrible, terrible thing. I've been doing this 60 years. I never thought we'd come to this. Well, you're very brilliant, and um, you're very gracious to give us your time. Folks, we've been talking to Alan Dershowitz, Professor Emeritus, Harvard Law School. Um, you're a prince, Alan. Thank you ever so Thank much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk to columnist Joe Concha about politics, maybe life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Back to the Larry Gudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're going to talk to Joe Concha, columnist at The Messenger, Fox News contributor and author of the great book, Come On, Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good, Horrible, Very Bad Presidency. Joe, we don't have as much time. We went long with Alan Dershowitz. But I wanted to add, if you're very kind to come on on the Saturday, thank you for that. And I just wanted to get your quick take off the top of your head. You've got, I mean, I interviewed Trump on the TV show, and he was awfully good on policy and issues. Uh, I reckon you agree with him a lot, too. But um, in any event, it's sort of like indictments versus issues, okay? Mm -hmm. And then throwing into the mix uh, the growing Biden scandals. But how right now, here we are in mid to late August, how do you see this? How do you weight the scales, indictments, issues, Biden scandals? Indictments towards Trump, as far as media coverage, scale of 1 to 10, 1 being barely seen, like Edward Snowden, 10 being I can't get away from this, like I'm watching our Kardashian reality series, uh, 10, right? So that that's all the focus is on Trump in terms of his indictments. Biden scandals. Almost zero. It would be zero if not for Fox News and maybe some other outlets like the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal. But overall, those are being ignored. ABC, NBC, CBS Evening News, 20 million people watch that when you combine all their audiences. 0.0 minutes and seconds towards the Biden bribery scandals. It's the forbidden fruit. It's the third rail of journalism. Thou shall not touch or report. So when we look at issues versus indictments, what would Democrats love more than anything? They would love not talking about an economy where 76% of Americans say that it is going in the wrong direction. 17% of the country says that the country in general is going in the wrong direction. We see what's happening with the U.S. southern border, which is still a humanitarian and national security crisis. We see American cities, people leaving in droves from New York to San Francisco because crime is out of control. DAs aren't enforcing the law. Education, ACT test scores at a 30-year low at this point. I could go on and on in terms of energy independence and foreign policy positions as far as the Ukraine war and our stance towards China. But Democrats, if they run on issues 
against any generic Republican, they lose, and they lose in a landslide. But since Donald Trump will likely be the nominee, he will bring out votes against him, and the focus from the media will be on Donald Trump, the person, in terms of his legal challenges, and not about the current guy in the Oval Office, in terms of Joe Biden, his performance, his age, and his scandals, Larry. Mm, Wow. Listen, Joe Concha, like everybody, I love to hear you talk about this stuff. You know, Joe, the reason I did the interview on the economy, right? We didn't talk any scandals, no indictments, no politics. It was on the economy and all the issues. That I was trying to get Trump's views out there uh, for the reasons you stated. No one's really talking about that stuff. And the other Republican candidates, Joe, are... They don't have anything. They don't have any message. Trump has a great message, growth and prosperity and, and, and drilling and so forth. And nobody else does. And yet, as you suggest, at the moment, it may be overshadowed by the indictments. The number one issue, Larry, when you look at Gallup and they poll people on a monthly basis, what is the most important issue to you when you vote? The economy, far and away, just like it always has been in basically every election, 2020 being an exception because we had a pandemic COVID, people were locked down, they were scared, there was no vaccine, not that the vaccine has been all that effective, but at the time, there was so much uncertainty that that election is an anomaly that we'll never see again probably in our lifetime. But every other election is about the economy, and until these Republican nominees have a clear message around how we get this economy back to where it was in 2019, you're missing the boat, Larry, you're missing the boat. Yeah, I hear you, I hear you. Terrific, Joe. Um, see you on the show as soon as possible on the TV. Joe Concha, the yes. messenger and Fox News contributor. Love to hear him talk about this stuff. Quick break, folks. And then we're going to talk about the ruble is sinking, the Chinese yuan is sinking, mortgage rates are exploding. John Carney of Breitbart News will be with us in just a couple. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Going to bring in one of my favorite people on the planet, John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, and co-author of the Daily Breitbart Business Digest. Uh, You know, John, just as an aside, between the stuff you do, and there's a couple other writers, Breitbart has really good business coverage now. Yeah, thanks a lot, Larry. And happy birthday, by the way. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, no, we, we, we have really tried to, you know, make sure that people understand what's happening in the economy, you know, whether and without any political spin. You know, mm. you're not going to we're not going to talk down the Biden economy if it's doing well. We're not going to happy talk you about your stocks. We're going to just give you, you know, the straight story uh, whenever we can. No, you're right. Um, It's very honest and straightforward, and it's really good. And so is your reporting. So, John, we were talking on the TV show yesterday. I want to go back to this issue of uh, sharp increase in mortgage rates, which I guess is being driven in part uh, by the increase in the Treasury rate, the 10-year rate has jumped up to four and a quarter. It's almost 100 basis points higher than it was a bunch of months ago. Now, this mortgage rate problem, uh, what's this going to do to housing? It looked like housing might have found a bottom, but maybe not. You tell me. 
So I think it does present a risk of a further downturn because we had settled in around 6%, uh, you know, a little higher than that. Then we, we've jumped up to 7%, and we may be going even higher than that. There are two things going on here. One, that you know, the mortgage rate is very linked to the 10-year Treasury because they're relatively exchangeable assets from an investor point of view. You can buy mortgages. You can buy 10-year Treasuries. So those the, the, the rates tend to be very linked to each other. The 10-year Treasury is being driven up by two things. The yields on, uh, on these things are being driven up by the fact that, uh, one, people are saying, okay, look, the Fed may have to keep rates higher for longer. Mm-hmm. And the Fed's been saying that, but people are starting to realize it. The other thing is we have just a tremendous amount of debt. Normally, uh, you issue a lot of debt when you're in a recession. And, of mm. course, there that can be helpful because people want safe assets at that time, right? People want to buy treasuries because they're afraid of what will happen to the stock market. Right now, we have, we have recession levels issuance of debt going on, mm. even though the economy is growing. So I think we've actually overwhelmed – something we haven't done for decades, basically, is overwhelmed demand for treasury – we're reintroducing what they used to refer to. I think it was Ed Yardini who actually came up with the the phrase bond vigilante. Yes, yes, it was Ed re- Yes, yeah, I think they are returning to the market, uh, and people are basically saying the, the the debt's out of control, and so that's what that's one of the things that's going on in the treasury market right now is while there's still enough demand, you know, we're not having failed auctions or anything like that, but. I do think that's one of the reasons we're seeing uh, the yields go up as much as they have, because, look, when you, you know, normally economies growing, debt starts to come down. Instead, mm. the Biden administration has decided to just, I guess, attempt to permanently launch us on a much higher debt path than uh, we've ever been on before. And these, um, actually, that's an interesting point. These uh, Biden's spending programs are actually spending out much more than their original CBO estimates, which will make That's the right. problem they- you just described even worse and hence might reflect. what. But, John, come back. What happens to the housing sector? Uh, let's say you get to 8%, all right, on the mortgage, uh, 30-year mortgage. Um, homeowners, I don't know. What are they going to do about it? People that want to uh, move, what are they going to do about it? Um, I don't know, young people looking to buy a house, what are they going to do about it? I mean, it's kind of, it could stop things dead in their tracks. Absolutely. It becomes very, remember, uh, almost all housing transactions actually involve at least three deals, right? Because somebody who's selling their house is almost always buying their house. Mm. buying a new house Mm. that might be a move up or it might be a move down some people are moving into bigger houses some people are empty nesters and they think they don't need the house they have and they're moving to smaller ones that becomes really hard to do when you're going from a three percent mortgage to an eight percent mortgage a lot of people actually find that they cannot afford to move uh, and that creates problems in all sorts of ways it creates a a problem with employment because it means that somebody wants to hire somebody and maybe have them move to a new city, you know, to come work at a new job. Hmm. 
the employer then finds that they have to pay somebody a lot more because when that guy moves, he's facing a much bigger mortgage rate than he had in his old job. Hmm. So it's often better for him, even if he's going to get a raise by taking the new job, to stick in the old job. That creates a lot of economic friction that can actually hold back economic growth because people aren't moving to the jobs they're best suited in because they're locked into their homes. Mm. Of course, it's really devastating for people who want to buy their first home because, you know, one, the affordability problem of very high prices plus an 8% mortgage makes mm. it hard for anybody to, you know, move into their new home. Uh, you know, I often hear from people who say, well, you know, when I bought my house back in 1982, mm. you know, we had 10% mortgages, sure. But even compared to income, home prices were a lot cheaper then. Right now, compared yeah. to incomes, home prices are very expensive. And when you combine that with a, you know, with an eight, seven, eight percent mortgage, that makes it really unaffordable for a lot of people. And so that freezes the market. People can't afford to move. So that means people can't afford to buy and people aren't selling. I mean, it's really bad if you're a real estate agent right now, but it actually also has bad implications for the broader economy. So if you're thinking about if you need cash and you want to refinance, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. I haven't looked at the uh, at the um, financing numbers, but I'll bet they're way down. Is that going to – are people going to go and sell stocks, John, to, to get cash? Yeah, I mean, look, the refi market is going to be dead for quite a while because mm-hmm. so many people have you – know, one, they've refied already. Um, and so the, even if they're, they've been building equity in their house, even just taking out something like a HELOC can be very expensive mm-hmm. uh, if, the, you know, they're trying to withdraw equity, raise cash. So, sure, one of the alternatives is to sell uh, their stocks. I, there was a, um, a fellow who was on Fox Business the other day being interviewed because he was selling his 25-year built collection of Rangers memorabilia. Because people <laughs> need to sell assets that aren't their house because they can't afford to buy a new house because the mortgage rate is so high. What, did he own the Stanley Cup from 1982? <laughs> <laughs> he, owned, he, owned, he owned, you know, it was 25 years. He owned helmets signed. Actually, the coolest thing he owned was a helmet signed by all this wasn't even a Rangers thing, but all of the 1980 U.S. Olympic team oh, that signed, uh, right. you know, the, the great, like, yeah. you know, we defeating the Russians' yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. hockey team. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, one other point, John. Um, the whole China story is going downhill. Uh, the yuan currency is going downhill so much for replacing the dollar. But also, m- more generally, uh China is not in recovery. Uh, you reported yesterday on the TV show about the youth unemployment being over 20 percent. Uh, that's going to those China recession winds will blow over here, I assume. That's right. Look, when China we're going to see something that will be probably good for us in that China recession will hold down the price of oil, which mm. will help. I keep gasoline cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, they they are probably actually holding down inflation in the U.S. right now, and that mm-hmm. if China was growing, inflation would probably be higher. So they are somewhat exporting deflation, which right now is not 
a terrible thing for us since we mm. had very high inflation. Mm. However, um, I think one of the things that we're learning is there were a lot of people who were very bullish on the China economy. They said, look, once they get rid of these lockdowns and COVID zero policies, you know, the China economy will come roaring back. It turns out, and we saw, you know, that when you do the, these repetitive lockdowns, you actually sort of psychologically and economically traumatize people mm. so that the Chinese are not, the Chinese consumers aren't spending. They're engaged in very precautionary savings mm. because they don't trust the government to allow the economy to function. Mm. So, you know, they, this idea that somehow China's economy was going to come worry back, of course it's not. They don't have a free market economy. It can't come back in the same way our economy was able to bounce back under the leadership that we had, you know, right up until 2021. Right. Uh, we were able to bounce back a lot because all we had to do was say, okay, look, we're going to let the free market take over again. That worked. In China, it doesn't work. The people are saving enormous amounts, which just means they're not investing it. They're not spending it. That keeps unemployment high. Mm. And frankly, I'm worried about the geopolitical risk. When you have a 20 percent youth unemployment rate in a country as large as China. Revolution. The government's going to. Yeah, revolution. <laughs> revolution or, or also historically war. Right? When countries Square. can't figure out what to do with their young men. Oh, they very often boy. have decided to send them off to war, and that's not you know, that would not be a great result for anybody. Yeah. Right, 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 right. John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. Thank you, John. I'm going to see you at dinner tonight. Appreciate it very much. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. Other side of the break, the great Roger Stone is going to tell us, will Mr. Trump debate on Wednesday night? Doesn't look good right now. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We bring in my great friend Roger Stone, longtime political consultant, strategist, close advisor to one Donald Trump, New York Times, 3 to 4 p.m. on, or is it 3 to 5 p.m. on Sundays? Three to five on Sundays there at wabcradio.com. There you go. And stonezone.com, that's, that's the right uh, website? That is correct. Stonezone.com is where you can get everything, Roger Stone. All right. So I spent a lot of time with Donald Trump this week. We had a wonderful interview on economic issues and other related issues. He was fabulous, Roger. I mean, he was just at the top of his game two days, two days after that stupid Georgia indictment. He was, it was a great honor. The whole thing was just wonderful. I don't know if you saw it or heard about it or read about it, but he was at the top of his game. Now, the question, Roger, is um, there's a regularly scheduled Fox News-sponsored debate in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on Wednesday uh, Maggie Haberman is writing in the New York Times that he is not going to show up. Uh, what does Roger Stone think? Uh, I think that's a very solid decision. Uh, first of all, because Fox, in their last interview with him, uh, which he did with Brett Baer, every single question was hostile. They were nonetheless hostile. 
and why should he elevate these other candidates? When you're leading now by 60 points, even the great Ronald Reagan, who both you and I revere as a tax cutter, even Ronald Reagan never had this intensity or this level uh, of strength within the Republican Party. Why would you just give uh, these lesser-known candidates an opportunity to take pot shots uh, at you? You have nothing to gain and everything to lose. I'm not saying he should never debate, but he most certainly should not do this debate. Well, my interview with him was fair and square. First of all, Larry, happy birthday. Uh, and, then, and, then, and then secondarily, uh, I really I did see the interview. He oh, really good. was on his game because he understands the key to economic growth and prosperity for all Americans to yes. be the key to his return to the White House. Uh, it's the economy, stupid. We don't help the economy by shipping billions of dollars uh, to a war in Ukraine when we have no peace talks even ongoing. Uh, But nonetheless, he totally gets it. Uh, And anybody who wants to juxtapose his record with the record of the current administration can see the stark choice. Well, the reason I did it, uh, and he he loved it when I proposed it to him, is I'm trying to get people to listen to what he's saying on these key policy issues to rejuvenate America and uh, to, to to show a growth and prosperity agenda and so forth. And, and he was absolutely terrific. Now, you know, he asked me, Roger, uh, after the debate, um, we talked for quite some time personally. I, mean, I happen to love the guy. I admit it openly. I was honored to serve him in the government. Uh, and then we all, a bunch of us had dinner together. He asked me, I, I didn't give him a view, okay? I don't give him political views. I just said, if you do it, you're going to you're gonna clobber the rest of them. I mean, you know that. He's a terrific debater. And he knows more about the issues, five times more about the issues than any of these others running. That's all I said. I didn't, I didn't say do it or not do it. I just said, if you do it, you'll clobber it, which he will, wouldn't he? I think he certainly will. He's really, I traveled with him for four days, I guess, two weeks ago. Mm. Uh, I've never seen him more upbeat, more resolute, more more resilient, more determined. I mean, when you consider the enormous burden that he's under, the fact that they have now totally weaponized uh, our political system, uh, our, pardon me, our judicial system, and they want to criminalize perfectly acceptable political activity, uh, it's absurd. I mean, I was attacked on MSNBC this week because I correctly said in a video uh, the role of the state legislatures under Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution in terms of certifying electors to the Presidential Electoral College. I didn't talk about fake electors. I didn't talk about rigged elections. I simply stated the law and the history as it is and the immediate calls for my incarceration uh, on uh, X, now formerly known as Twitter, were ubiquitous. I was trending for two days by simply correctly, accurately, and historically the Constitution and the law. It's ridiculous. Well, we had a little while ago on this show, we had Professor Alan Dershowitz and, and his article, Al Gore, his legal team, and I, 
tried to find uncounted presidential votes, lobbied officials, and fought in the courts in 2000. The only difference now? The candidate's name is Donald Trump, and that's why this prosecution is an outrage. He's talking about Georgia. I mean, that's Dershowitz, who is not a Trump uh, voter, right? And he acknowledges that openly. But regarding the law and the Constitution, the Georgia Georgia indictment, and the others too, it's an outrage. It's an outrage. But, of course, you think in a debate, Mr. Trump will have a chance to get his policy issues out there? Or is it all going to be about this stuff? Uh, that That's the distraction. I think that he's going to be constantly uh, attacked uh, over these, uh, what we New Yorkers call, fugazi indictments, <laughs> uh, when there really, when there is no crime. Uh, he's doing these terrific Agenda 47 yes. videos yes. in which he's addressing every issue. Yes. Uh, his, the economic ones have been particularly strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, Larry, to be honest with you, I have urged him to return to X, formerly known as Twitter, where mm-hmm. he still has 81 million followers. I like mm-hmm. Truth Social, the, mm-hmm. the uh, social media website that he owns. Uh, I'm on it. I like it. It's great but you can reach millions, millions more. I don't say he should go there every day. I don't even say he should go there every week. But when he has an important policy matter Mm. about economic growth or about the war in Ukraine or about uh, uh, the uh, activities of the Chinese that are adverse to this country, that's the place I think he should go and talk. I have a country and Western superstar Lee Greenwood, the man who wrote God Bless the USA. Mm. Also, uh, Garrett Ziegler uh, of the Marco Polo Research Group, who has completely published and digitized uh, and footnoted right. the Hunter Biden uh, laptop right. uh, content. Uh, it's a very, very interesting show. By the way, Larry, he is the nephew of Ron Ziegler. I knew, I knew Ron Ziegler. I knew. Roger Stone, 3 to 5 p.m. Sundays on WABC Radio. Thank you, buddy. Folks, we're going to take a break and then do some stock market work on the other side. It's not a good story. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're going to reset. You can join us during the week on television. Fox Business named the show's Kudlow, and it runs 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And if you can't make it at 4, you can DVR us. And by the by, this show, you can get us on the Internet. If you want to live stream us on the Internet, LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com. Runs all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and the Milky Way. Don't forget that. So we're going to look at stocks for the next half hour. And it's not been a pretty picture. The Dow is off 781 points. NASDAQ off 354. The S&P 500 down 94. So it's about 2 to 3% decline pretty much across the board. Um, we're going to bring in our experts, Jim Urio, dear friend, director of TJM Institutional Services, uh, 
one of Chicago's leading restaurateurs, and Pete Najarian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, an option monster, and I know Pete very well from my days on another network, we'll just say. By the way, Jim Urio, my love, how is the restaurant story doing out there? You own a bunch of them out there in Chicago or the suburbs. How's that stuff doing? What's the economy look like? So the restaurants are still doing, the ones I talked to, um, the good ones are doing well. There have been some that have fallen off, and I think that people are changing their consumption patterns. We, we're we at a price point where we're like the affordable luxury. We're like, uh, you know, high-end pub food. And we're doing, I mean, we have a line out the door. I think that people are dialing down from going out to a place that's, you know, 150 bucks a person. Which I know you in New York was like 150 bucks a person. In Chicago, that's a lot, is what I meant to say. Um, 150 bucks a person is a lot for a meal. Oh, good. It, okay. it is. Yeah, it's a lot. Okay, it's good. A- but I think people are dialing back a bit. <laughs> but again, there's still liquidity that's been pushed into the system, and it's still people are paying for experiences more so than they were a few years ago. And when you think of all the the um, the consumption that's going to online for retail, the restaurant business is still the only place that's the social gathering now that malls are toast. So I think the restaurants are still doing okay so far. They use uh, gas-burning stoves in those restaurants? <laughs> no, we use fire, baby. <laughs> They're going to have to that. They're going to have to come and get them. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, Pete and Jerry, and welcome back. Uh, what do you make of this market? Um, just as a general matter to oversimplify, which I love to do, uh, mm-hmm. you've got interest rates up and stock prices down. I was talking with John Carney of Breitbart about the mm-hmm. uh, pending 8% mortgage rate. I noticed the 10-year note has jumped up to 425 That. It's almost 100 bips higher than it was, I don't know, a couple of months ago. Um, mm-hmm. What are you saying, Pete? What do you, what do you make of this story? Well, I think the, uh, the the elevation of the 10-year is certainly something that slowed down the markets in a big way, and particularly the parts of the market, Larry, where we've seen the most movement. For instance, like in the semiconductors, if you just look over the last month or so, you look at the semiconductors, they're down anywhere between 8 and 10%. And mm. even names like NVIDIA, you know, and NVIDIA was the name that everybody says, you've got to own, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. It was 480 not too terribly long ago, and it's given back a lot going into their earnings. Now, that, that might end up being something pretty good um, in terms of the setup for earnings. They, won't, they don't have to necessarily absolutely hit the perfect quarter the way I think they would have if the stock price were still where it was, but... I think you're exactly right. People turned and started selling, specifically those big NASDAQ stocks that were moving, based upon the 10-year, which a month ago was 375. August has been 4%. It's been sticky. You just mentioned it was 4.3 this week. That's extremely high, and we finished out at 4.25. We're still sticky and holding up here above 4%, and I think the longer that persists, we're going to see more selling in a lot of these levels, a lot of the different uh, sectors that have actually had the first half of the year very, very strong, but those are the ones that they're coming after right now. Yeah, I think that's an important point. If I'm not mistaken, if you go back several months earlier, the 10-year dropped to something like 335 or something like that. So it really, anyway, the move is substantial. You're suggesting that the 4% handle is here to stay, at least for a good while. And so, um, Jim, you've had a good year in stocks, but now there's this August swoon, and it is related to rates. So 
are these um, you know negative conditions going to remain? Well, this is we talked about this. First of all, Pete, I haven't talked to you in a couple of years. Pete's one of the best guys around. Thank you for having oh, me on. You, Good to talk to Pete. Um, I, I think that, that we're missing a little something here too. So we we screamed from October up to those highs on July 27th, and then we turned around. Now there was a whole month where the VIX volatility index was trading under basically under 13 and a half percent. We had just it, we had wrote the, the move had rode its course. Now, the fundamental picture that Pete laid out is absolutely real. And the funny part about it is, is the irony is that the reason those, high, those long-end rates have gone higher, the reason we're in a bear steepener in uh, the yield curve is that it used to be that we were going to say that, well, the Fed's going to have to ease and ease aggressively in 2024. That's starting to come out of the market, and people believe rates are going to be higher for longer because they believe in this soft landing narrative. And I'm not sure I believe in that, but that's one of the reasons that the stock market is getting hit because if we're starting to now price in rates that are going to stay high for a long time, whereas just a month ago we were like, yeah, they're high now, but – Soon the, soon the Fed's going to uh, panic and start to pump liquidity into the system. So that's why we're pulling markets back. But that's ironic, though, that we're saying that the economy, they're saying that the economy's better, and that's why stocks are getting hit, which I, I do think that's the story. And we said when Kenny Poker and I both said on this show two weeks ago, mm-hmm. August is a bad month. Technically, this pattern looks terrible. I think we're due for a 10% correction. Can I answer your question? I don't remember what your question was. Sorry about that, Larry. No, no, that's. I'm just <laughs> looking for overview. So, let, uh, 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 Jim, you the ten year rate rise is because the economic news is better. Is that what you're suggesting? And that's so what we I'm know that. Yeah. We know. Okay. So, and we know the Fed doesn't like growth. So the market <laughs> is now adjusting all of its expectations. As, so. The, I mean, is Jay Powell going to scare the hell out of everybody? Uh, I don't know when the meeting is in Jackson Hole. It's in a week or ten days. Is he going to just uh-huh. get up there and scare the hell out of everybody? I want both of you to weigh in on this. I'm not a big fan of Jay Powell. In my interview with Donald Trump this week, he said he would not reappoint Jay Powell if he were president. <laughs> but what's what's? I want both of you to weigh in. Jim, finish your thought on Powell, and then I want to get Pete. Yeah, I think that Powell is probably frustrated because he, he knows full well that there's going to be an uptick in inflation at the next one just due to base, base effects. He's probably frustrated that he hasn't caused the damage. A year ago at Jackson Hole, he swung a sledgehammer at us and gave that four-minute speech or whatever where he said, you are all going to experience pain or something like that. So I think there's a potential that he could smack us again, and the stocks are reflecting that too. Well, Pete, think of it this way, uh, one way to look at it. The Fed is jamming down inflation. They raised their target rates by 500 basis points plus. They are draining reserves. The balance sheet is starting to come down. It's off about a trillion now, uh, net, net. But the um, Atlanta Fed's uh, GDP now tracker is, I don't know what it is, it's 5% for the third Mm -hmm. quarter. All right? So that is, you know, you've got 1,000 Fed PhDs screaming at them probably because they want the economy to slow down, but it doesn't look like it's slowing down. So how does that play out? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point, Larry. And, and when you when you consider this, they, you know, I think the biggest concern the Fed has had is they, their concern over the pace of what's going on from inflation. And, you know, mm-hmm. they I think they expected it to be something at a different pace than it is. And now if you just the other day with those meetings notes, 
you heard the word uncertainty come out, which we never want to hear, right? I mean, that's that's something. It's like your doctor saying, "Oh my," you know. You don't want to hear that. So it's it's one of those situations, I think, where you know we've we've crushed demand by lowering inflation, and that certainly has, especially in the housing market, is the greatest example. I heard earlier you were talking about that, and you were talking about the the seven percent rates. Well. You know, all you've got to do is look over at the builders, and you can see they absolutely were ripping this year, Larry. They were one of those areas that absolutely nobody ever talked about them. But it was it was Lennar, it was Toll Brothers, it was D.R. Horton, all of them hitting new highs and now pulling back extremely fast because of the fact that these rates are, are out of control. And you're talking about 7%. Well, it's multiple decades since we've seen some of these. Yeah, last year, October, November, we, we, we popped up for a moment, and then we gave it back. But... We are at levels that will slow things down, and, and, and that is something that I think we need to pay attention to. And by the way, while that's slowing down, lumber prices are going up. So there's, there's a lot of different factors going in right now, depending on what part of the market you want to look at. But, Pete, housing is essential to the economy. I mean, its tentacles mm-hmm. reach everywhere in the yeah. economy. So mm-hmm. if, if this mortgage rate, uh, you know, puts the clamp, I mean, it looked like housing was stabilizing, at a low bottom, but nonetheless not getting worse. If you have a a second bottom for housing, that's got to hurt the whole economy. Yeah, well, higher prices and higher rates, that's kind of the double double whammy, right? I mean, Mm. that's a problem. Inventories are down a little bit versus a year ago. Um, They're they're looking for ways that they can get around this, but I'm not sure how you do it. People are going to slow down, and they'll be on the sidelines when you've got 7% mortgage rates. That's just a fact going to happen and that's the concern all right we're going to take a quick break jim urio director of tjm institutional services pete nigerian co-founder of market rebellion and option monster i'm kudlow we'll be right back this is the larry kudlow show now back to the larry kudlow show welcome back folks I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking stocks with Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, and Pete Najarian, co-founder of Market Rebellion and Option Monster. Uh, guys, during the break, I looked at two things. Um, I went back. GDP now from the Atlanta Fed for the third quarter is 5.8%. Right, now, I don't know if that will hold, but that's just for the recent data. Then I looked at the commodity, the CRB stuff. So, Jim Yuri, I'll start with you. Copper, steel, and lumber, very soft in the last month. You mentioned that. Uh, soybeans and wheat, also very soft on the ag side. Uh, oil, uh, maybe off the top, but oil, the recent thing looks pretty strong. So, uh, how strong is the economy? I mean, really, five point eight? It's kind of hard to believe. I, I don't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that they, yeah. I don't. And again, that's a model that Atlanta Fed now model is something that I've had some decent respect for over the years. But I don't know where it's gone astray right now. And to go from you know, just a couple of months ago saying you know recession's coming to five point eight percent, I think is relatively ridiculous. Um, and I don't think that's going to happen. But the narrative is the narrative. You mentioned these commodities too, the copper. The story out of China is a bigger story than I think is getting right, uh, right. play. And right. I think there's going to be a time where that story is going to be almost going to come in and copper is going to have one more down move and then it's a buy. The oil thing is uh, oil's my, we talked about this two weeks, that's my big play. I need a settlement above 84 and a half. 
before mm-hmm. I get long or any more long than I am. But the reason is that is that we, again, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, we were pricing in, um, you know, recession and a panic fed. Now all of a sudden we're pricing in higher rates for longer in an economy that's not going to go into recession, which again, the yield curve is still, it's, of course it's flattening or of course it's steepening. I get confused when it's so inverted, but uh, it's still fairly inverted. The, the market still says a recession's coming. So I think, um, those commodities, oil, and eventually copper, are going to be the places to be. Hmm. Um, hmm. Yeah, but I, I still don't think we're going to be. I still think we're going into recession. I think it will get might follow through on that is from big um, big liquidity injections from China and possibly from us at some point too. Well, Ed Hyman, who's the number one rated economist uh, on Wall Street, is still believes the recession is coming. He, he said. Mm-hmm. Things look, thing, I mean, he talks about the inverted yield curve a lot. I agree with him. The New York Fed model of the inverted yield curve, three-month bill to 10-year, shows uh, about a 65% chance, a 65% probability of recession in the next year, even though it may not look like it uh, right now. Pete Najarian, I want to go back to, you were talking about NVIDIA before mm-hmm. in the tech sector. Uh if rates, I mean, I don't know if the 10 year is going higher or not, but if it went higher, will that drive down these techie stocks? I would think so, Larry. And, and the reason I say that is, you know, it, it's about what do you want from the standpoint of most of the people have been riding, I would say, many of the different semiconductor names, specifically AMD and probably NVIDIA and a couple other names. But they had a scorching run to the upside year to date, right? I mean, it's been absolutely incredible. But at some point, you, you want to take some of those chips off the table, so to speak, and I think that's what people started doing. And the second we started to get above that 4%, that's where NVIDIA started to really started to shake a little bit. So basically, the, the month of August, we've watched it go, from, like I said, 480 down towards the 430. So it's a pretty dramatic uh, 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 pullback already. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to have to have some pretty amazing earnings when they come out, because that's the, that's the focus, I think, this week. AI, semiconductors, we all know the different stocks there. Everybody talked about the Magnificent Six. I I don't agree with that whole premise, but there are a lot of different names that I think contributed to this rally. But NVIDIA is certainly one of those names that we look to. So, um, you know, when you're trading somewhere north or thereabouts of about a 50 forward P.E., you've got to be pretty close to perfect. Um, Mm. And that's what I think we're looking at for their earnings. Now, they were were just trading closer to a 70 P.E. when they were higher than they were now. And this thing's been a lot lower. But um, for one second, I would like to hit on that that crude uh, move, movement that we've seen as well. And I only say that, Larry, because when you think about it, when you've got two OPEC cuts, a million barrels apiece, it made so much sense that July you'd finally see a major reaction, which is exactly what we've seen. And I think Jim's been on it and I've been on it. And, you know, you were sitting there looking at crude oil. It hit for the third or fourth time right around 68, had that bounce drove up to 84, back down now around 81. I wouldn't be surprised at all if we, we test those levels that Jim was talking about somewhere north of 84. Um, I don't know why we wouldn't. We've got demand there, and certainly that's a big factor, especially when you've got a lot less uh, barrels coming into the market. Even with China? Even with China on a, you know in recession or whatever? I, I think so, because I think with, with China, you know, as you and I both know and all of us know, uh, that they are not what everybody thinks they are. We all think they're the U.S. They're not. These are they're communist not. countries, and and they do they deal with things differently. So they will manipulate things just like they wanted to drop the uh, the unemployment rate for the youth. 
I mean, uh, who does that? It's the craziest thing should, in the world, but that's China. We should, we should send a China uh, ch- uh, chart to Joe Biden and just say socialism <laughs> doesn't work. It does Fellas, Thank you, Jim Urio and Pete Nigerian. Socialism doesn't work. I'm Kudlow. We're going to take a break. Other side of the break, we're going to talk money and politics with Liz Peak and Steve Moore. Please stay with us, folks. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to talk money and politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works and Heritage Foundation and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and his great radio show, More Money, which will play on many of these same stations right after this show. Welcome back, Steve. Thank you, Liz. Great to have you back. Um, kids, I just want to say one quick thing. Um, James Buckley passed away uh, Friday at the age of 100. Uh, I-, I knew Jim Buckley rather well, not as well as Bill. It was Bill Buckley's brother, obviously. He was a great, um, a ma- a great man, a great conservative leader, uh, he was a U.S. senator. Uh, he was a diplomat in the State Department, uh, and he was a federal judge for many, many years. In fact, he was a federal judge right up until the end. So I, I want to say, please rest in peace. This was truly a great American and a wonderful human being, a wonderful human being, um, just the politest, most gracious man you'll ever meet. Uh, but he had sturdy, strong unbendable conservative principles. I don't know if either of you knew Jim Buckley, but I wanted to say that there's a very good Wall Street Journal editorial about him uh, in the paper this morning. So, yeah, can I, I'll actually add something to that, Larry. I grew up in Sharon, Connecticut, which, of course, was the home oh, base for the entire wow. uh, Buckley family. In fact, huh. we grew up next door to each other. Uh, hmm. And Jim Buckley actually ended up buying my parents' house oh. uh, because that was very convenient for his family to kind of be able to go back and forth. But I, I couldn't second your thoughts more enthusiastically. He was such a nice guy. The whole—I mean, we were close to the whole family: uh, John, Bill, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jim, in some ways, was the most approachable, kind of level-headed, not mm. uh, a big publicity hound. Mm. Uh, and just a really decent guy. So I agree with you. I was sad to see the news. Liz, you never told me about this Sharon, Connecticut stuff. This is all <laughs> new information. Yeah, Wait, well, that was uh, it was not, a wonderful place to grow up. No one locked their doors. It was kind of yeah, a, you know, yeah. it was a very nice community. Sharon's not too far from where I am in an undisclosed location in the same state. <laughs> <laughs> uh I want to raise another point. Uh, I guess I'll go to Steve on this, but there's a terrific story. Um, breaking news. Nobel Prize winning scientist blows the whistle. Mm. Just listen to this, kids. I don't know this guy. Dr. John Clauser right. has now officially put his name to the World Climate Declaration, which states that, quote, there is no climate emergency, end quote. Clouser sent shockwaves through the global boiling alarmism industry, 
by declaring that the climate crisis narrative is a hoax. Now listen to this. This guy is the co-winner of the 2022 Nobel Physics Prize and one of the world's leading authorities on quantum mechanics, and he blasted climate emergency claims as a dangerous corruption of science that threatens the world's economy and the well-being of billions of people. Now I gotta get this. I gotta find this guy and put him on the TV show. But I, uh, I, did, did any of you know about this uh, this guy and and this uh, uh, world climate declaration? Yeah, Larry, we had a, a story in the hotline about this a couple of weeks ago. And oh, you did. It's a re- that- it's a very important story, Larry, because wow. what's happening here is that any time any scientist dares to to question the conventional wisdom and the narrative of the climate change alarmists, they become uh, muzzled, basically. And so this scientist who won the Nobel Prize was invited to one of these major science conferences. And as soon as he started casting doubt on some of the things that the climate change alarmists were saying, he got completely disinvited. Now, Mm -hmm. why is that important? Because when the left keeps saying 98% of scientists believe that there's climate change and it's man-made, that's because they don't let anyone who is who dares to, you know, doubt this stuff. They don't hmm. they don't let them have a voice. Huh. And and by the way, the the, the fallout from this unit, this fake unanimous opinion is really profound. I don't know if you guys read the editorial about Maui and the wildfires yeah. and why. Yeah. Uh, right. how this headlong rush towards renewables, which, by the way, yep. is all predicated on the climate change emergency, actually yep. may have been the problem uh, in in yep. uh, this wildfire going out of control because the utility had not spent any money right. at all on protections yep. against such a fire. So, mm. you know, billions of people might starve because of the idiotic approaches that they're trying to take. I mean... You know, I, Larry, I don't know how it is that we're going to stop this thing or slow this progressive freight train towards renewable energy, which is going to really hurt this country and I think all countries. Uh, by the way, in Europe, they have already slowed it down <laughs> right. because they've actually felt the effects of it. But it's really not. Steve is right. If voices against this uh, orthodoxy are, are suppressed, it's just like COVID. Then they don't exist. They're basically persona non grata. It's extremely alarming. Well, there's another part. Of, there's another part of the story that's really important. So, had now uh, major forest fires last year in California, and we had obviously major major forest fires this year in Canada. And we, a lot of us in the United States, felt the effect of that through the uh, smog that it caused over our skies. Now, here's the here's a really interesting factoid that nobody likes to report that the amount of carbon that has been emitted into the atmosphere from the forest fires in California and Canada have negated every single green energy and anti-climate initiative by the left for the last 20 years. In other words, if they just spent one-tenth as much money to manage the forests and do, you know, clearages so that you wouldn't have these forest fires, we wouldn't even have to be talking about wind and solar power and $200 billion a year to that industry. Do you know this guy, John Clauser? I never met him. <laughs> Quantum mechanics, Nobel Physics Prize. I mean, he, I'm reading his article. It's the damnest thing. Well, here's a, here's another quote: misguided climate science 
has metastasized into <laughs> massive shock journalistic pseudoscience. <laughs> Liz, you got to get on this. This is unbelievable. I'm yeah. going to send you this article. I'm going to send this to both of you. It's an unbelievable I think, I, article. I, I think the problem is, honestly, the ship has sailed. Can you imagine trying to get all the talking heads on CNN, or oh my God, Bloomberg, which is like so dug in on climate change, mm-hmm. it's, it's a religion to them. I don't know how you ever turn the boat around. And, I, I, you know, honestly, I despair at this because, it's again, it's like the COVID restrictions and shutdowns on information. It causes real damage, and nobody is courageous enough except, thank heavens, the occasional scientist who might actually know what he's talking about to really confront it. I, it's And anyway, yes, send it to me because well, I love I stories like this. Well, but, listen, you know, this is, you know, it's like Steve Coonan, uh, who was so good on this stuff. And, you know, Coonan is a, th- a theoretical physicist. He didn't win a Nobel Prize. He was Obama's chief energy science, energy department science scientist uh, a while ago. But this is really, and I might say, when I spoke with uh, Trump this week, in the interview, he spent a lot of time on this. This was a yeah. major point. Um, he, you know, he tied it to inflation. He tied it to national security. And he also, Steve, one point the former president made, he said um, Americans should have choice. Don't tell them what they can't have, you know, with gas-powered cars and shower heads and all the rest of that stuff, microwaves. We need to be able to have choices. It's part of freedom. And boy, is that a winning message politically and economically to let mm. people decide for themselves. I mean, the idea, remember the left's mantra used to be keep the government out of the boardroom and the bedroom. And now they want to regulate every single thing in your bedroom. What thermostat mm. is set at and, and what kind of stove you're using. And, uh, you can't use your air conditioner too often. Um, so people are very upset about this. And the one thing they're really upset about, Larry, because Americans have a love affair with their cars. Mm. The yeah. idea that the government's going to tell you what kind of car you can buy, that's not going to go over well <laughs> in middle America. That's well, a, and they know, are. Liz, that's what that's they're a, moving towards. That's an unbelievable thing. I mean, think about that. So what, in five years, six, seven years, <laughs> there are no gas-powered cars? People are going to go nuts over that. Well, and I think the auto industry is going to be looking really sad because people are going to want to continue to buy the used cars that still operate the way they like and are there familiar with them. Uh, I don't this whole headlong rush to only electric vehicles, at least they should be including hybrid. Right. I mean, those cars seemed Mm -hmm. to be sort of a happy compromise, but there is no compromise. These are zealots. These are people I've likened the Biden White House and the energy industry sort of aficionados that they're working with as being like children of toys. They don't really know what the outcome of all this is going to be. There's no long-term plan. It's just haphazardly putting pieces together and hoping it all turns out well. It's not going to turn out well. Well, John Katz, you know, and the the story last week or the week before, uh, Ford Motor Company lost four-and-a-half-some-odd billion dollars on their electric vehicles, including their electric trucks. And now the CEO of Ford, Liz, you're an old Wall Streeter. The CEO of Ford is just basically saying, I was wrong, I was wrong. And now yeah. they're going to try to switch to hybrid. They're going to change their whole business plan. Yes, because they should be. <laughs> it's Remember, just before the Soviet Union split up, 
Remember the cars they were making? I think it was called the Hugo or something. And it was a centrally planned car that nobody wanted. And so what happens in that situation? They produce it and they produce it, and it sits on the lot and rusts because nobody wanted it. Well, that's what we're going to end up with Ford Motor. All these electric vehicles, which nobody wants. It's crazy. There's a parallel story here, Larry, that's right up your alley, which is, you know, we saw the uh, bankruptcy of this uh, electric battery bus company. Uh, And it's about $100 million taxpayers have lost. And people have to understand that what's going on, that John Podesta, uh, uh, you guys both know who John Podesta is. He ran the Obama campaign. I know him personally. I know him Yeah, he's a very smart political guy. But he is running inside the the, – the White House, hmm. a, I don't know, $250 billion uh, hedge fund, basically, huh, right. where he's passing out money to these, uh, to, to all of these green energy firms. And I guarantee you, virtually every one of these firms that's getting this money is a big donor to the Democratic Party. And so he was asked, well, how, you know, what's going on here? You know, you're passing out all this money and these companies are going bankrupt. And, you know, you're going to have some bankruptcies, you know, nobody bats a thousand. But this is outrageous. This is government. This is like fascism where the government decides where investment capital goes. Did you say slush fund? It is a slush fund. <laughs> All right, I got it. It is. I, I got to take a quick break. I mean, we're, look, it'd be fine if somebody <laughs> like Liz were running this program, but John. <laughs> How much money is it? I, I'm, I, I don't know the, well, it's a remember the inflation rate? It's a couple of hundred billion. I think it's yeah, a couple hundred like billion dollars. I would give Liz a couple hundred billion dollars. Thank you. <laughs> I would just have a good idea about what to do with it. Liz Peak, Fox News contributor, syndicate columnist, Steve Moore, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and the host of More Money on many of these same stations right after this show. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We are talking money and politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated <laughs> columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works and Heritage Foundation, and the Committee of <laughs> Unleashed Prosperity Hotline, and the host of the radio show More Money, which plays right after this show on many of these very same stations. Now, I've got this op-ed piece. Actually, it's not really an op-ed piece. It's a fabulous temper tantrum by Liz Peake about Joe Biden's attitudes toward business. This is Liz Peake of Sharon, Connecticut, as we learned today. (laughs) Here's Joe Now, this is wonderful stuff. Joe Biden saying corporate profits are coming back down to earth. The excesses are being eliminated by the corporations. Liz calls this Biden's anti-business mindset. Reminds her of the Obama years. And then she goes on to talk about regulations under Joe Biden. This is from the Casey Mulligan stuff, Steve. Under Joe Biden, uh, per household, increased costs $9,600, call it ten grand increase, whereas Trump uh, lowering regs reduced the cost to the average household by 11000 bucks. So that's a twenty thousand dollars swing. Liz said Trump talked quite a bit about this in my interview. Uh, what made you write this beautiful temper tantrum? This is really a nice one. 
Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I was reading uh, Joe Biden's speech he just made on the anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act. And by the way, I want to just tell you both. I just found online Podesta's spending slush fund, three hundred seventy billion dollars. That's not nothing, right? Can you imagine? That's a lot of money. That's a so lot. So anyway, of money. in reading this, in reading this, his speech, which I always enter, I'm always entertained by, um, the, the the number one reason we've seen inflation fall by two thirds without losing jobs is that corporate profits are coming back to earth. The excesses are being eliminated. So my view is if in Biden world, if corporate America goes bankrupt, we're going to be in really good shape. Uh, I mean, it's just the stupidest thing, but. It is because the people surrounding him, longtime Democrat operatives, think, A, they need to pass the buck because Americans uh, think that too much spending led to inflation, and Democrats cannot own that because they are the party of big spending. Uh, so they need a culprit, and the culprit is corporate profits. But, I mean, what a bizarre kind of thing to talk about. And But anyway, that's not so important. What really is important is this regulatory onslaught that the uh, government has voiced. And, and Steve, your guys really did a good job on this. Uh, it's really important, and I think it's been under-reported uh, under, uh, that this is really slowing down our economy and will do much more of that in the, in the years to come. Yeah. There's, by the way, that's really important, but there's something, uh, Liz, that's actually a lot more important than even that, which is that a little birdie told me, and I hope this is not misinformation, that this is Larry Kudlow's birthday. No. Oh my goodness! Exactly. Is that right. true, Larry? Are you Happy 59? birthday. <laughs> is it true? Tomorrow. Uh, happy birthday tomorrow, Larry. Tomorrow. I don't count them anymore. It's way too hard. <laughs> but profits are the mother's milk of stocks and the lifeblood of the economy. That's an important point. Democrats hate profits. They hate corporations. They hate business. This is the most anti-business administration in history, worse even than Obama. I mean, Liz's point here is very, very important. And the regulatory burden, Steve, adds to the burden on profits. Look at, think of it this way. You're a company. If you don't make money, how are you going to hire people? If you don't make money, a.k.a. profits, how are you going to increase wages? And, you know, remember Jack Kemp used to always say the trouble with Democrats is they love employees. They just hate the employers. And that's really what this is. It's a perfect well, example of it, Steve. Yeah, that's true. And this war against profits is so devious and sinister because, I mean, let's face it, the profit motive is the greatest invention in the history of the planet. Yes. <laughs> yes. Know, right? Yes. I mean, yes. profits are wonderful things. Yes. Uh, Liz, I love profits and I hate losses. <laughs> mm. And so, uh, look, everything that we have, everything that we have, is a result of the profit motive. And the profit motive has done, you know, more to reduce poverty around the world than every mm. government program in the history of mankind. So why? I mean, I agree with Liz. These people are dingbats to think that, you know, they want to bring profits down. That's going to bring the country down. I yeah, believe think it's about that. Free, that's, free market that's, capitalism. That's their plan. And, and Larry, the, the other ingredient in this is profits lead to investment. As you said, investment leads to productivity increases, which means wage increases. So yes. you can't really be for the little guy, the working class American, unless you believe in profits. I mean, that's that's what drives their welfare. 
So oh, Liz, 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 this, this is an old-fashioned idea. We now have John Podesta who's going to be driving yeah, our I know, I know. <laughs> we I don't mean, need companies. <laughs> we need a zero corporate tax. We need a zero <laughs> corporate tax. Just there abolish the corporate tax altogether. I love, I got to explore this. 370 billion, Liz? Is that what you said? 370 billion dollars. And I was reading right. an article in the New York Times about it and talking about how it was such a challenge because the scope of it is so enormous. Oh. And rarely have governments ever undertaken such a challenge. No, the Soviet yeah. Union undertook yeah. such a challenge. China <laughs> exactly. undertook such a challenge. Liz Peake and Steve that. Moore. Love you both. Thanks, kids. Folks, I'm Cudlow. That's it for today. We will be back ber- next weekend. Thank you. Happy birthday. <laughs> This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.